welcome to episode 46 of History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about Joseph McCarthy, and we had an interview with New York Times bestselling author Larry Tai, which I'm very excited about. I think Joseph McCarthy is an interesting political figure. I think Cold War politics, specifically in the aftermath of World War II, is always an interesting period because what you have kind of going on is, I think in the decade after World War II, you see this, I think, transition to a more balanced political system in the sense that uh, the Republican Party was able to make kind of a comeback riding this wave of hawkish behavior towards communism and the Soviet Union. But there were also other events going on. I mean, the Democratic Party had controlled, I believe, the House and the presidency under FDR for almost 16, 17 years straight. They were the party that had led the U.S. to victory during World War II. There was a, they had helped lead the country out of the Great Depression with the creation of Social Security, a lot of other sort of social welfare programs that continue to go on to this day. So they had that high reputation. But what you also had going on in the aftermath was the rise of the Cold War, the economic recession as a result of kind of the economic downturn after World War II. I think at one point during the war, the unemployment rate got down to like 1.4%, which is, I think, the lowest ever recorded in modern U.S. history, which is kind of crazy. So you had those dynamics going on. And in addition, you also had the Korean War, which was under Harry Truman, a Democrat. So you had, I think, kind of the perfect storm of both even economic foreign policy and political downturn that allowed the Republican Party to revive. And what's interesting about the period in particular is that you have one extreme, which is Joseph McCarthy, who is kind of the embodiment of, I think, the type of bully type of politics that kind of continues to exist to this day. And then you have Dwight Eisenhower as president, who is this great statesman here during the Second World War. So in some ways, you know, the Republican Party has always been known or tried to advocate as a big tent party, and in some ways it has. So you had all those dynamics going on. And when we're looking at Joseph McCarthy, in particular, I think he was kind of perfect for the immediately aftermath of World War II and the Cold War, because you had, again, really, you had 1949, the Soviet Union obtaining an, an atomic bomb much quicker than most experts assumed. Then it was later found out that the Soviet Union had had spies, a Manhattan Project, and was able to gain those secrets fairly easily. You also had, again, the Korean War, which was, again, this broader effort against communism. So I think Joseph McCarthy really was one of those figures that was bred for that moment. And what would follow in terms of the political damage and the reputational damage, in some ways, it's weird. I think McCarthy was ahead of the game in terms of what I think most people prefer the cancel culture, which is you throw out allegations you throw out as much smoke as you can and people assume there's a fire and many, many people, career government officers were hurt as a result. It really was kind of a witch hunt at a time where fear, particularly when it came to communism and the Soviet Union, was at a fever pitch. So it's really interesting. And you can actually go back and watch some of the old hearings. There are some on YouTube and stuff, and it's, it's kind of similar to this day where if you talk to politicians or people around it, in some ways, hearings are almost like theater. It's where politicians can really make a name for themselves with a soundbite or an argument or something like that. Then 1955, 
the McCarthyism was no different. And he really was able to play the media in a lot of ways that Mr. Ty will get into. But I just wanted to give that background in to kind of what was going on in terms of when the McCarthy era happened. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. It's an interesting interview about a kind of a unique time, I think, in American political history. On today's episode, we welcome Larry Tai. He is a New York Times bestselling author who has written numerous books, including Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon, Rising from the Rails, and recently wrote Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joseph McCarthy. Previously, he was an award-winning reporter at the Boston Globe, where his primary beat was medicine. He's also served as the Globe's environmental reporter, national writer, investigative reporter, and sports writer. Before that, he was the environmental reporter at the Courier-Journal Louisville and covered government and business at the Aniston Star in Alabama. So welcome on. Great to be with you. And to start, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in Joseph McCarthy? So I'm interested in more than anything, American history around the 1950s, 60s era. And the I became interested in Joe McCarthy for two reasons. One was because my last book was a biography of Bobby Kennedy. And I could never get out of my head what Bobby's widow, Ethel, had told me about Joe McCarthy, which was that while McCarthy might be a monster to much of America, to the Kennedy family and to Bobby and Ethel, and particularly, he was just plain good fun. And good fun aren't two words I would normally associate with low blow, Joe McCarthy. The other thing is that in 2016, I was due to launch a new book, a biography of Barack Obama. I had signed a contract and I had signed that contract actually a week or two before the 2016 election. And the week after the election, I realized two things. One was that a biography of Barack Obama would have to wait until the end of the era of Donald Trump to understand Obama's true legacy. And the other was that a story about Joe McCarthy, which might otherwise have seemed like a piece of ancient history, suddenly came alive and seemed the story of the moment with Donald Trump in the White House. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered, either as a journalist or writing these history books? So the biggest challenge is getting original material to make people who didn't know the story of McCarthy be interested in it, but also to interest people who had read the hundred earlier books on McCarthy or the Red Scare. So you want, on the one hand, an original thesis on who this historical figure is and material that is new and can back up your thesis or help you define the thesis. And in this case, I was lucky and had three things that no previous biographer had ever had. The first was 9,000 pages of recently unveiled transcripts of the hearings that McCarthy held behind closed doors, which showed us a different take on Joe McCarthy. It showed us that when he kicked out the press and kicked out the public, he was Joe McCarthy unhinged. Any pretense of pretending about the rights of the accused went out the window. The other thing it showed us was there was a different Joe McCarthy in the morning and in the afternoon. In the morning, he was stone cold sober, and his questions and his conduct of the hearings reflected that. In the afternoon, after he had his trademark lunch of a hamburger, a raw onion, and lots of whiskey to wash it down, he was anything but sober, and his questions and his conduct of the hearings reflected that. So one set of documents are these recently unveiled 
hearing transcripts, which nobody had gone through in any great depth. A second was all the personal and professional files that McCarthy's widow left to his alma mater, Marquette University. And for 70 years, biographers had been begging to see them. And for 70 years, the family had said no. And they said no originally to me the same way they had to everybody else. But one day they relented and his daughter said yes. Why she relented, I have no idea. But the fact that she did and the fact that I got to see the papers that every biographer had dreamed about seeing all this time was a nice second stash of material. The third was all of McCarthy's military records and all of his medical records. And the military records showed that he was, in fact, the war hero that he claimed, but that nobody believed. And the medical records show that he did not die of what the coroner and every journalist in America told us, which was acute hepatitis. He died from being, sadly, an acute drunk. And all of this with those three stashes of papers, if I couldn't write a good book in an original book, then shame on me because I had extraordinary luck of having access to things nobody had seen before. Yeah, that's all super interesting. Can you just briefly describe McCarthy's life before he really entered politics? Maybe some of the things that were driving him towards a political career? Sure. Yeah, an overweening ambition drove him into politics and into the kind of politics that he orchestrated during his long public career. He ran for his first office when he was a law student. He showed at that time that he would do anything to win that office, which was just president of his law school class. He and the other guy running for office, for that office, had both agreed that they would vote for one another, that it was unseemly to vote for themselves. They both kept their word in the first round. When that ended in a dead tie, they had a runoff and McCarthy won by two votes. The two votes were his opponent's vote for him and his vote for himself. And when his opponent challenged him and said, how could you do that? He said, look, I was telling everybody to vote for the best man and you wouldn't want me to do anything else, would you? And that is normally where the story ends. The truth is that McCarthy ended up defeated opponent, the guy who he had cheated out of the election. He ended up winning his friendship and his lifelong admiration because when this guy's dad died, McCarthy borrowed a car, borrowed money for gasoline for the car and went to the funeral. And he was about the only guy from the law school class to show up at the funeral. And that made an impression. So the story with Joe McCarthy was never as simple as his being an evil cheat. He was an evil cheat, but he was also something more. He was a charismatic figure, which is why Ethel and Bobby Kennedy adored him, even though he did all the mean things that he did. How did McCarthy become fixated on communism? Had he previously been super hawkish on communism? And initially, why did he kind of choose to look at the State Department of all government agencies? So that's a good question. And the answer is a single word, opportunism. He was looking for an issue that would take him from being the backbench one-term senator that he looked like he was on the way to becoming. He had tried lots of other issues. And when he showed up in February of 1950, at the most important speech he ever delivered in his life, which was the Lincoln Day Dinner, the dinner celebrating the birth of Abraham Lincoln in, as his staff called it, Wheeling, West Virginia. He showed up with two speeches in his briefcase, and he wasn't sure which one would have a better shot at making a splash. One was a deadly snoozer of a speech 
on national housing policy, which is something he actually knew something about. But had he delivered that speech that night, 70 years later, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking about Joe McCarthy. Instead, he reached deeper into his briefcase. He pulled out a speech where he charged without any evidence at all that there were 205 spies at the U.S. State Department. Now, what he held in his hand that night might have been his wife's. Actually, he wasn't married then. It might have been his grocery list. It might have been recycled charges from somebody else, but it was anything but the list of 205 spies at the State Department. But it didn't matter. Joe McCarthy loved being able to make a dramatic charge like that. Reporters loved being able to print that there were 205 spies in the State Department. He was often running with an issue that he knew nothing about with charges that he couldn't back up. But he and the press had a field day for the next four years. And as we see in today's world, telling small lies works easily enough that politicians are tempted to tell whoppers of lies. And Joe McCarthy was nothing if not a skilled teller of lies. And kind of throughout these four years, how did other Republicans and even President Eisenhower see McCarthy? So Eisenhower and most of his fellow Republicans in the Senate and across the country were shameless enablers of McCarthy. His fellow Republicans, including the Senate Majority Leader, a guy named Robert Taft, understood that McCarthy's charges were made up, but they also understood that they were getting political fuel out of these charges, that they could charge that it was the Democrats who were soft on communism. And so even while they were telling their friends that this was a dangerous demagogue, they were telling the public, go Joe McCarthy. Dwight Eisenhower, from the moment he took office in January 1953, his brother Milton Eisenhower was whispering in Dwight's ear, saying, take on the demagogue give up a little of your popularity and bring down this bully. And Dwight's answer to him and to everybody who said that was, no, McCarthy has got to do himself in and he will eventually do himself in. Well, that was true. But for two years while Eisenhower was president, McCarthy was destroying reputations, was destroying careers, was actually having people commit suicide because they were targeted by Joe McCarthy. And I think it is one of the most shameful episodes in a proud career of a heroic soldier and a relatively decent president. His unwillingness to take on Joe McCarthy was a shameful episode. And did McCarthy generally do a good job of leveraging the media of the time? Was there a specific publication that he would go to to spur these charges? He did an embarrassingly good job in taking on the media of his time. What he saw was he understood the rules the media played by. And what that meant was if you release a story an hour before a reporter's deadline, the chance of their getting the other side in the next day's story was infinitesimally small. If you release that story in a place like Wheeling, West Virginia, where the only two reporters who are covering you that night are from the local Wheeling Intelligence or newspaper and the local radio station, even had they had time and had it not been a dinner speech, they wouldn't have known who to call at the State Department to see whether this was true or not, that there were 205 spies there. So he understood the rules the press played by. He would end up on the page one the next day. And the response the next day after that 
by the other side would be on page 24. He also understood that the thing that reporters want more than anything is to be on page one of the newspaper or to be the lead story in the next day's radio or TV report. And he put reporters there often enough that they would shamelessly ignore the fact that there was no substance to his charges and they would repeat them. And he didn't have to have favorite reporters. There were only a handful of reporters in the first few years of his crusade who had the courage to stand up and take him on. And they couldn't do it very successfully because the rest of the press corps was out there just trumpeting his phony charges. And I think one of the interesting parts of this era is this term McCarthyism. Was that something that was coined at the time? And where did that term really come from? So it was coined at the time. Joe McCarthy said it was something that he was proud of, that McCarthyism didn't have in his mind, or at least in his words, the stigma that it has today of reckless accusation and guilt by association. McCarthy defined McCarthyism as America with its shirt sleeves rolled up. And if it reminds you of something today, it's with good reason, because I think someday we will have a movement and an ism that we call Trumpism. And that will be something that is defined very differently than Donald Trump would define it. Well, Joe McCarthy was proud of his movement and even of his ism. And did McCarthy have a lot of institutional support outside of the political sphere? Did most Americans generally support his efforts? So by the start of 1954, when he took on finally an enemy that was too big to bully, but before he did that, by the start of 1954, the Gallup polls told us that a full 50% of America, one in two Americans, thought that McCarthy was doing a great job. And to put that in context, Donald Trump has never had anywhere close to 50% of support in the polls during his four years of being president. And the only person in all of America in 1954 who had a higher public figure popularity rating than Joe McCarthy was the president, Dwight Eisenhower. And how did McCarthy really approach trying to discredit his critics, either in the press or in the Democratic Party? So what he would do to Democrats who took him on, starting with a famous senator from Maryland named Millard Tidings, is he would go in and support or enlist, in Tidings' case, a Republican to run against him. He found a know-nothing, unknown Republican he got him backing from McCarthy's financial supporters in Texas, a lot of big oil men and others. He got him a bag of dirty tricks that McCarthy had coined for his own campaigns over the years. He brought in staffers to run the campaign. He took on the powerful Senator Millard Tidings and he beat him. And that sent a message to all the rest of the political establishment, take me on at your own risk, beware of the steamroller. When people in his own party took him on, like a senator who we know today only because of her willingness to take on Joe McCarthy, the only woman in the Senate back then named Margaret Chase Smith from the state of Maine, she and six fellow moderate Republicans took on Joe McCarthy. The McCarthy, they unveiled in the, on the floor of the Senate what they call their Declaration of Conscience, saying that what McCarthy was doing, his techniques and his results were un-American. Well, McCarthy lashed back, declared that Smith and her six fellow Republicans were Snow White and the Six Dwarfs, and he would coin 
incredibly clever and slanderous names about his opponents. He would go in with a wrecking ball and take them on. It didn't matter whether what he was saying was true or was a lie. He was really good at it. And it made people, it made fellow Republicans think, why would we ever take him on? It made Democrats think we're going to wait for the Republicans to take him on. And it meant that the political establishment became McCarthy's enablers. And two of the few senators who did take him on ended up committing suicide because it was such a painful process being in Joe McCarthy's crosshairs that they felt that was their only way out. And just to kind of wrap up his political career, was there a particular hearing or event that made people turn on McCarthy? Ultimately, how would his political career come to an end? So the most famous public set of hearings ever held in Congress were a set of hearings held around Joe McCarthy, the so-called Army McCarthy hearings in 1954. Joe McCarthy had taken on the U.S. Army, saying that there were spies, nests of spies, at various Army facilities around the country. And the Army finally fought back. And his fellow senators, McCarthy's fellow senators, said, we can't tell who's telling the truth. We've got to hold a set of hearings. And after several months of hearings, in the middle of several months of hearings, there was one magical moment that galvanized the country's opinion. The country started the hearing with 50% of the public behind him. The hearings ended with that popularity plummeting to 34%. And the magical moment And maybe the most famous words ever uttered by an American lawyer in the history of the American system of jurisprudence were when a leprechaun-like lawyer from Boston, a very smart guy named Joe Welch, stood up after McCarthy attacked Welch's young associate. Welch stood up and said, Senator, have you no sense of decency? At long last, have you left no decency? Well, those words, while they looked like a spontaneous defense of his young associate, were something the actor Joe Welch had had in his pocket the entire hearings, knowing that at some moment McCarthy would do something that was so outrageous that it violated any sense of decency. But I think the key was that all of America wanted to know the same thing at that moment. Whether Joe Welch had said it or not, all of America was thinking it and had decided this guy had no sense of decency. And I think to put it into contemporary terms, that moment was like what happened when Donald Trump's supporters attacked and invaded the Capitol building. It was a magical moment after lots of other things were the buildup. One moment captured the sense of outrageousness that had been building for a long time. And I think that if the election were held the day after that attack on the Capitol, the 70 million votes that Donald Trump got, while a certain base would have continued supporting him the same way 34% of the public continued supporting Joe McCarthy, the numbers would have gone from 70 million down to some other number that I don't know exactly what that would have been. But there is a moment where I think the public in America finally says, in the case of demagogues, enough. And to just wrap up some concluding questions about his impact on American politics, how much of an impact do you think Joseph McCarthy has had on American politics, not just particularly in the era he was in, but also in a lot of the different political eras that followed? So I think he's had two kinds of impacts. 
One is the impact around his particular issue of anti-communism. And while on the one hand, I'd like to think we outgrew that simplistic labeling somebody a socialist or a communist, being able to get away with doing that in a simplistic way, we see that in today's politics. In the Georgia Senate runoffs, the Republicans' argument to the Democrats was not, I disagree with this or that policy. It was to label them in Joe McCarthy-like fashion a socialist and to think that was all you had to do. And so that has persisted in a way that I find disturbing. But the more important issue is that McCarthy set the playbook for every demagogue that has followed, whether it was George Wallace, the Alabama segregationist governor, or David Duke, the KKK guy from the state of Louisiana. Joe McCarthy set the playbook. He showed demagogues to follow how to have a simplistic populist appeal, how to find scapegoats how to steamroll his opponents, and how to blame the press when the news was bad. And that is a playbook that Donald Trump, I think, borrowed from day one in taking office. It was a playbook handed from Joe McCarthy's protege, a young lawyer named Roy Cohn, who 50 years later was Donald Trump's tutor. And he handed to Donald Trump the Joe McCarthy playbook, which Trump continues to use to his last days in office. In in terms of the context of the Cold War, do you think that allowed McCarthy to do much more damage than he otherwise might have been able to do if those overarching themes hadn't been there? It did. And so the whole history of previous Red Scares um, made Joe McCarthy's job easier. And yet McCarthy was a brilliant enough opportunist that I think that had he come along 10 years before or 10 years after, he would have tapped into either the same issue or a different issue. It didn't matter to Joe McCarthy what the issue was. He was willing to do absolutely anything to get power and to keep power, even if he didn't quite know what he wanted to do with the power once he got it. My final question is, besides his impact on American politics, what do you think his overall legacy is? Not just in politics, I would say, but really just in general. So I think while I describe Joe McCarthy and I think he was America's archetypal demagogue, I think my book and his story is ultimately a good news story. And the good news is that give a demagogue enough rope and he or she will hang themselves. And the good news is that while America may continue to much more easily buy into a demagogue or a bully's argument and fuel their rise in electoral politics, America eventually has seen through every one of our demagogues. And once we see through them, we reject them. So I hope you enjoyed that interview about Joseph McCarthy. I know it was a bit of a shorter interview. Again, sometimes you have to deal with the time crunch, but I thought it was a great overview about the McCarthy era and his life. And in a lot of ways, I didn't really, you know, one of the weird things, if you read his book that he kind of gets into is Joseph McCarthy was kind of a nice guy. I think there are clearly anecdotes about the fact that he wasn't always the guy people remember him, but also you look at how history can judge people and how history and their legacy over time can be constructed in very specific black and white ways. And I think Joseph McCarthy in particular is one of those figures. Again, he died only a couple years after he 
I don't recall. I think he didn't run for re-election, but he died of alcoholism only a few, I believe, in 1957. So there wasn't all this time for him. Some politicians that are driven out or by scandal will you know resurface years later to tell their side of the story or things along those lines. And Joseph McCarthy never got that day. He never got his day in court, I guess you could call it. So it's weird reading about this era and him in particular, I think is sometimes misunderstood. And that doesn't take away from the damage and the allegations that he did. He did do tremendous harm and throwing around allegations with zero credible evidence and doing tremendous damage to many longstanding servants, both whether it was in the State Department or the U.S. Army or actors at Hollywood, all those sorts of things. But again, I think it's one of the things about history is it's not always as black and white as people want it to be or as it is. So those are kind of my thoughts on Joseph McCarthy. I think, again, it came in a really interesting time in both Cold War history, American political history. I would definitely recommend his book. As he kind of mentioned, he was the first journalist or author to be able to get access to a lot of the primary documents, which allowed him to kind of tell the story. And I think it's kind of long due. I mean, it's almost been 60, 70 years during that political era and getting a fresh look at it from McCarthy's perspective, I think is really unique. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're going out and read the book. I would definitely recommend it. It's really insightful. I hope this interview and this episode piqued your interest in terms of both American political history and Joseph McCarthy. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.